I'm glad that you're here this morning to worship with us, and I hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted. I truthfully wasn't sure if any of y'all would be back this week after Austin's mid-sermon rap. Y'all remember that? I thought surely that would be the last straw for some of you. But here you are. I'm so glad. And this morning, I am going to be wrapping up our series. See what I did there? called To the Scattered. We've spent the last eight weeks in a series um, in 1 Peter, um, which is a letter that the Apostle Peter has written to a group of scattered believers all across Asia Minor. Now, these Christians and these churches, they've been undergoing um, a notable level of persecution and suffering. In the first week of the series, Austin talked about um, how these Christians they, they were uh, persecuted by the surrounding cultures because they just had really odd and unacceptable behavior among them. These Christians, they, they did not uh, conform to the culture's sexual freedom views. And these Christians, they didn't worship other gods and they even shared fellowship uh, with lower class people. Just really unacceptable and odd behavior for the, the culture around them. And so it invited this regular persecution into their lives. And so the apostle Peter, this is the same Peter who was a leader among Christ's followers. Uh, and also, you know, y'all might recognize him from his more uh, recent reality TV show. So Peter writes this letter to these Christians. And the general message of Peter's letter is really the exact same message that all of scripture gives to all believers. And that message is this, it's going to get rough, but it ends well. This is the general message of the Bible to believers. Now, I can't help but think about Abraham in, in Genesis 15. This is a scene where Abraham uh, is being reminded by God about the covenant that he has made with him his promise to make him into a great nation and to lead him into a land flowing with milk and honey. It sounds really great. And then though, we get to verse 12 of Genesis 15, and this is what we read. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God is telling Abraham that it's going to get rough, but it ends well. And we know that's exactly what happens. Abraham's people, the Israelites, they end up as slaves in Egypt for 400 years before God sends Moses to rescue them. Y'all remember the stories. And then we get to uh, the New Testament and we see Jesus gives this exact same message to his disciples when he's nearing the end of his time with them. Just before he is betrayed by Judas uh, and then arrested, he tells his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 32, he says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's going to get rough, but it ends well. Peter's letter emphasizes this age-old message of scripture. 
But then it also serves to answer the question for these suffering and persecuted believers, how then are we supposed to live in the waiting? If it's going to get rough, but it ends well, how am I, as a Christ follower, supposed to live in the interim? And that's essentially what we've spent the last eight weeks talking through. And Peter tells him things like, you should respond to persecution with a firm but gentle faith, treating everyone with respect and honor. He tells them to not live sinfully, but be sober-minded, to put away uh, sin and live holy lives. He tells them things like, submit to proper authority, live within the law, and really just be a good citizen. And then we get to chapter five, this closing portion of Peter's letter, where he seems to be telling these believers that the key to doing all of these things, to resisting sin and and loving people and to uh, submitting to authority, the key to living well in the waiting is humility. So we're gonna read in our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter five, we'll be reading verses one through 10. It says this, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we open here with Peter speaking to two specific groups of people, first to the elders and then to the younger. So who exactly are the elders? Well, in contrast to the younger, they are quite literally the elders of the church, the elderly. Now, they also likely would have held some status as leaders, uh, some positions of responsibility in the church, because at this time, the two generally went hand in hand. And Peter's got some you know, difficult things, some challenging things that he's going to say to them. And if we pay close attention here, we're going to notice that Paul is actually modeling for them the very humility that he is encouraging them to have in their own lives. What's the first thing he does? He exhorts the elders of the church as a fellow elder. He says, I'm just like you. And this is interesting because do you recall who Jesus says he is going to build his church on? It's Peter. We see this in Matthew 16 when Jesus is with all of his disciples in Philippi and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And if you recall, it's Peter who answers correctly and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And do you remember what Jesus says to him in return? 
In Matthew 16, 18, he says, and I tell you, this is Jesus, I tell you, you are Peter. Do you know that Peter's name means rock? You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus himself has told Peter, hey, you're gonna be the one to raise up and build my church. And yet Peter doesn't use this as a claim to fame or as a way to gain followers or make a name for himself. No, he humbles himself before the elders and he says, I'm a fellow elder just like you. And as if that weren't enough, he goes on and humbles himself further by recalling arguably the most painful and regretful moment of his life. What does he say? He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and then also as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He says, I was there when Christ was murdered. I saw his suffering firsthand. And I promise you, there's not a chance of Peter recalling the suffering of Christ without also recalling the fact that he had denied even knowing him those three times. It's hard for us to forget. It's one of the first things that I think of when I think of Peter. I don't know about you. Denied Christ three times before the rooster crows. Peter has humbled himself before the elders, before the church in saying, I was there. I, I remember this moment of my life where I saw the suffering and I denied him. It's a humbling moment. Peter has some difficult things that he needs to say to the people of the church, both to the elders and to the flock, to the followers there. And so he knows that in order for them to hear and receive what he has to say, he coats his words in humility. Humility is the key here, and he is demonstrating for them the very thing that he is about to say to them. So he begins his general exhortation to the elders by telling them to do something in verse two. What does he say? He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock. Now, interestingly, Peter's using the same language here that Jesus used with him in John 21. Do you remember when he appears to the disciples on the shore after he is resurrected? And the disciples are out fishing and, and he says to them, come and have breakfast with me. And so the disciples come in and they're all sitting around the fire and they have breakfast with Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus asked Peter? He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Three times Christ asked Peter this. And three times Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And what does Jesus say to him? Then tend my lambs, feed my sheep. This is no doubt a monumental moment for Peter. As we, as we said, he's just denied Christ those three times. And now he is sitting face to face with him right here. And he no doubt has been carrying this immense shame and guilt. And here in this moment, Christ is going to restore what is broken between them. In this moment, Peter is going to be recommissioned as a shepherd by the chief shepherd himself. It is a moment of humility for Peter. And now Peter humbly commissions the elders of the church to go out and do the same, to shepherd the flock of God to feed his lambs, to tend his sheep. And I imagine that in this moment, 
uh, where he is commissioning these elders, Peter's own restored calling has got to be in the forefront of his mind. He remembers this and he knows how important this is. And so he proceeds to give them very straightforward and specific advice on how to shepherd the flock well. What does he say in verse two? He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, care for the people that God has entrusted to you, not because you have to, not for something that you can gain or make a name for yourself. There's, there's no humility in that. But shepherd them because you want to please God. He goes on in verse three and he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He says, a good shepherd doesn't need to shout and bully their sheep, their flock, to get them to do what they need to do. A good shepherd will just live well among them. Lead by example and your sheep will follow. Peter's last words uh, of encouragement specific to the elders is in verse four. And he says this, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, Peter is doing something here in this verse that he's been doing throughout his entire letter. And we're gonna see him continue to do in this closing. He is pointing them towards something greater, a greater good, something beyond their present situation, something beyond they can see, something even beyond their earthly situation. He's pointing them towards the ending well. He says, when the chief shepherd comes, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The crown is the glory of being accepted by God. And that is the greatest thing that they could receive. It's going to get rough, but it ends well. And so he says, look forward to and live for the ending well. In verse five, he goes on and he speaks to the younger crowd of the church. And he says this, he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, again, age and responsibility generally went hand in hand at this time. And so those who are younger are assumed to be the flock of the church or those who are meant to be led by the elders. And so it's important to pay attention to order here. See, Peter's not telling the people of the church to blindly follow poor leadership. No, he's already addressed the leadership in the church. And so he's, he's operating here from the assumption that if the leadership are leading as good shepherds, then the younger should then likewise follow that leadership. And to follow them likewise means similarly. So that would mean for them, follow your leadership because you want to please God. Not because you're obligated to, because you have to, not because you want to gain some status, with the elders or make a name for yourself. There's, there's just no humility in that. But follow the leadership because you want to please God. Peter closes the uh, specific exhortation here with a word to all of them, to the leaders and to the flock. And he says this in verse five, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter knows that humility is the glue that holds all of this together. And he's been demonstrating this to them this whole time. Humility toward one another. 
When we have humility towards each other, it leads us to to give that person, to give each other the benefit of the doubt, to think the best of a person. Humility leads us to forgive. Humility guards another person's heart and calling. Humility leads us to serve each other. And when everyone is concerned about humbly serving the other, the issues of leadership and authority are quickly eliminated. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The bottom line is here that pride makes for dominating, self-serving leaders and resistant, resentful followers. And God opposes this. God opposes self-serving leaders and he opposes resistant, resentful followers. As the good shepherd, God cannot and will not allow pride to poison his flock. That's why Peter's giving a warning to these suffering and persecuted believers about pride. He says, be careful to not wear pride as a badge of honor. Don't wear your persecution as a badge of honor. And when pride creeps in, y'all, as it so often does, it is humility that ushers the grace of God into our lives. Whatever your role is in the community, whatever your place is in a congregation, when it comes to just earthly relationships in general, the key to living well among others is humility. But he goes on. It's not just earthly relationships that benefit from humility, but there's a spiritual component as well. He says this in verse six. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Peter says, listen, if God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, like he just said, then you better humble yourselves. That's what he's telling them. And I love that Peter uses this language here, the mighty hand of God. This is a very intentional phrase. The mighty hand of God has been acting on behalf of his people throughout all time. In fact, it is this mighty hand of God who has faithfully worked on behalf of God's people, the Israelites, to deliver them out of captivity. We see this in in Exodus 3. Moses has encountered the living God in the burning bush. Y'all remember the story? And he has told Moses, hey, I'm gonna send you to Pharaoh to rescue my people. And this is what God tells Moses in Exodus 3, verse 19. He says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by something. What is it? A mighty hand. So I will stretch out my mighty hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Y'all remember the plagues? And after that, he will let you go. And I I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go up empty handed, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Does that sound familiar at all? We had just read earlier in Genesis 15 where God tells Abraham, hey, it's going to get rough. Your people are gonna be sent to be slaves in another land for 400 years. And then he tells them, but it's gonna get better. I'm gonna bring those people up with great possessions. And that's what we just read. Under the mighty hand of God, Egypt will be compelled to release Israel and send them up from their lands loaded down with all of Egyptian gold and clothing. 
It's the mighty hand of God who will work on behalf of his people at the proper time, which is in his time. The next few verses, uh, Peter's gonna expound on what it means then to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. He continues in verse seven, and he says, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It will take humility for us to recognize our desperate need for God and to cast our anxieties on him, to throw them on him and leave them there and believe that he has care for you. It takes humility for us to do that. He goes on in verse eight and he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now this is a tough one here. Peter is claiming that the real adversary is Satan, this roaring lion, not their obvious and apparent persecutors who they can see and experience and watch in all the ways that they've persecuted them. I think it'd be a difficult thing to hear that as a scattered persecuted believer. Hey, it's not those people that are the problem. It's your adversary, Satan. The devil. I imagine it would have been very tempting and easy for them to demonize the people who they could see who had made their lives as Christians so difficult. Can you imagine? That's why humility is the key. See, pride leads us to point fingers and hold grudges. Pride uh, leads us to zoom in on every single offense and keep a record, but humility leads us to zoom out to look at the greater thing that's going on, to see the bigger picture. Humility is what would help them to have a humble heart toward their adversaries, toward their persecutors. And remembering that they have a greater adversary would have helped them have that humble heart towards them. He goes on in verse nine and he says, resist him, resist your adversary, the devil. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, how does humility play into resisting the devil? Well, humility certainly doesn't mean that we're weak, but humility does allow us to tell the truth about ourselves and about our suffering. It allows us to understand that, that on our own, we cannot defeat our adversary, but, but being firm in our faith in the one who is able to defeat him, who has defeated him, that is the key. See, pride tells us that we're the only ones that suffer. Pride whispers in our ear that the persecution that you've experienced is a personal offense, and then it tells you to hold that offense close to your heart and never let it go. But humility, humility allows us to see the suffering of others and forgive. We're gonna close this morning with verse 10. And here in verse 10, Peter again is pointing them towards a greater good, towards the ending well. He says this, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We're called by the God of all grace. That means that, that it's not a calling that we've earned. It's not a calling that we've somehow managed to obtain on, on our own, but it is a calling of grace by the God of all grace. And, it, and also we read that he's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. And the key word here is eternal. 
not earthly glory. In fact, if we've learned anything reading 1 Peter, it's that we can expect the opposite of earthly glory. Is that right? Last week we read, not to be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon us. We read that last week. There's no earthly glory here. We're called to the to Christ's eternal glory. And I think if we're not careful, this can be a real point of contention for us because no matter how hard we try, we just can't seem to keep ourselves from expecting that glory to show up here and now on earth. That's why we have such a hard time with the, it's gonna be rough, it's gonna get rough here. And we want so badly to get to the it ends well. And we so badly want to apply that it ends well to every circumstance and every situation that we experience here on earth and in this life. And that just isn't the case. A few weeks ago, Austin referenced the quote, expectations are premeditated resentments. And I think this can so often be what happens in our relationship with God. We can expect God to behave a certain way under certain human terms. We expect God to show up and do a certain thing. And when he doesn't, we resent him. We're disappointed in him. And Peter is reminding these believers here in this verse that this life is not what they're living for. We're called to his eternal glory in Christ. That is the ending well. Peter writes that the God of all grace will himself restore us and confirm us and establish us. In his grace, he himself does those things at the proper time. See, pride will tell us, restore yourself. Establish yourself. Pride will tell us that God's timing isn't good enough. God's timing always takes too long, doesn't it? That's what pride tells us. Humility allows us to wait for him to restore, establish, and confirm us in his time. We have to be careful even to not apply our own understanding to what those terms even mean, to restore and establish and confirm. And no matter how much we, we might like for those terms to mean something relevant to our personal or our business or political status, we cannot ask scripture to say more to us than it does. God has not promised to, uh, to restore our social status or strengthen our 401k. He just hasn't. But God has promised to be faithful to his eternal glory, which we are called to by his grace alone. His grace alone. The entire message of Peter's letter here is set over a deep and abiding hope for the end to come so that all things can be made right. It's going to be rough for a time, you guys, but it ends well. And Peter's continually encouraging these Christians to have their eyes set on something greater, on something eternal. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could live a happy and easy life here on earth. And as much as y'all, as much as we all want that, and I do believe that Christ too finds joy in our joy, but that is just not why he gave up his life. Jesus died on the cross for our sin so that he could make a way for us to spend eternity with him. That is the ending well. Jesus Christ, the perfect servant, he humbled himself to death on a cross. Humility is the key to a servant's heart for every single one of us. 
Humility is the key to living well on our way home. Let's pray together. God, humility is something that just just comes naturally to no one. And God, we know that outside of what you have done on the cross for us, we couldn't have it, God, but you, you are the perfect servant who has demonstrated for us what humility is. And you have made a way possible for us to, to, to have humility in our own lives. It is your grace, God, that makes that possible in us. And so God, we just ask you for that. We ask that you help us to, to live as humble servants, God. Would you put within us a tenderness and would you, would you get rid of the selfishness that is in us, God, that we might be humble servants as you are.